Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the second great unifier of Japan. Last week, of course, we talked about Oda Nobunaga, who uh, began the process of unifying Japan. Today, we're moving on to chat about his successor, who more or less, I guess you could say, finished the job. We mentioned Toyotomi Hideyoshi last week. He was a loyal servant of Nobunaga and uh, very cleverly manoeuvred himself into position after Nobunaga's death, um, which meant that he essentially inherited Nobunaga's position as the most powerful person in Japan, although, you know, this had to be done with some clever wheeling and dealing alongside, obviously, cracking a couple of skulls. But after seizing power, Hideyoshi then followed in Nobunaga's footsteps, campaigning endlessly to unify Japan. And in doing so, he fought a ton of different people, as you'd expect, most of whom he beat, uh, but then some of whom he had to accept uh, something slightly less than victory, I guess you can say, against rivals like Tokugawa Iyasu, for example, uh, another another sign of Nobunaga. Uh, Hideyoshi's campaigning wasn't wasn't the clear-cut victory that he probably was hoping for. Nonetheless, in spite of some of the setbacks and challenges he faced, he did manage to unify Japan with a string of important victories throughout the 1580s into the 1590s. And having done that, he then set his sight overseas. Hideyoshi actually staged a couple of invasions of Korea and, uh, well, they didn't go quite as well, uh, but, you know, you'll, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that. You'll hear all about it as we get stuck in. But very quickly, just before we start, um, I do want to suggest that you go back and listen to the episode on Oda Nobunaga before this. Just go back and listen to the last episode. This one does stand on its own uh, better than most part two episodes, but uh, all the same, Still got a bit of a series going here, and you'll just have more context and more understanding as to, you know, the rise of Hideyoshi, where he was coming from, what he was attempting to achieve, uh, if, if you go back and learn about Nobunaga first. So that's my advice. But look, you know, you can do what you want. I'm not your dad. So you make your own uh, make your own choice there. Anyway, lots to cover today, uh, as always. So let's get into it. Uh, time to get in the way with the story of Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Strap yourselves in, because off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1537, maybe 1538, uh, to Awari Province, the home province uh, of Oda Nobunaga from last week. Uh, but it was around this time, 1537, 1538, that uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi was born. Although, of course, this wasn't the name that he was known by when he was younger. Uh, initially, he was known as Kinoshita Hiyoshi Maru, and then he went by uh, Kinoshita Tokichiro, uh, as we discovered last week, uh, before ultimately, in later years, becoming known as Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the name that we're going to refer to him as today. Uh, he was born into a peasant family. His, dad was, his dad's uh, name was Kinoshita Yemon. And uh, Yemon was what's known as an Ashigaru. Ashigaru were essentially foot soldiers. They were usually conscripted farmers that fought in the service of samurai. Sort of the, the equivalent you'd find in, in, for example, medieval Europe would be armed levies that fought alongside or under knights. Um, but a few short years after Hideyoshi's birth, uh, these Ashigaru began to be armed by their daimyos, the warlords that commanded them, with firearms as gunpowder technology uh, spread throughout Japan. And, and, and gunpowder is, as we talked about last week, going to play a very, very big role in ending the Sengoku period. Um, because this is, the, this is the time into which Hideyoshi was born, of course, the Sengoku period. We talked about it last week. Uh, very busy time to be an Ashigaru like his dad was. Uh, the Sengoku period 
was characterized by near constant war and conflict between rival daimyos throughout Japan. Um, but uh, his dad, honestly, actually didn't stick around to see a lot of it because uh, in, uh, in 1543, he died, uh, leaving young Hideyoshi fatherless as, as a very small child. But apart from this, it's actually very difficult to verify what Hideyoshi's childhood actually looked like or what it involved. Um, as I say, all too often on the show, we just don't know too much about what this bloke's early years, you know, what, the, what they looked like. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for this when it comes to Hideyoshi. The first one is obviously he was a peasant. He wasn't particularly notable. No one was really writing anything down about him when he was young. But secondly, he rose to become so famous and so well-known that people just sort of began to make stuff up about him. They just started sort of mythologizing his past, particularly as the years went on and historians chronicled his adventures and uh, his achievements. Uh, an element of, of legend and myth entered into uh, the you know the early years, or at least the, the story of his early years. So very difficult to pick apart the, the fact from the fiction. Um, there are stories about him, you know, being sent off to study at a temple. That may or may not, may not be true. There are stories about him turning to a life of, of adventure as a, as a very young man. And again, we just don't have any way to, to properly uh, verify this. But you will remember from last week that we met him as the sandal bearer of Oda Nobunaga. And, uh, of course, how he excelled himself at the Battle of Okehazama, fighting, uh, fighting against the Imagawa clan. But interestingly enough, where we can really start to tell the story of Hideyoshi was not him fighting against the Imagawa clan, but actually being in the service of the Imagawa clan. A couple of years before the Battle of Okazama, uh, he'd actually been on the side of the Imagawa clan, as I say, uh, traveling. He traveled from Awari province to Suruga province, not as a soldier, but as a servant. Um, and he, he acted as a servant to one of the Imagawa's minor rulers. Now, obviously, he didn't stick around for too long. He obviously didn't think much of the Imagawa either because what he did do while he was there was nick a bunch of money off of his lord and then return to Awari province where instead he signed on to serve the Oda clan in 1558. And this proved to be a good move because Oda Nobunaga at this point, he's on the up and up and Hideyoshi has made a very good choice in hitching his wagon to the already powerful Oda clan as it begins to ascend under Nobunaga. He followed in his father's footsteps in, in that he also became an Ashigaru but he rose a lot far, a lot, a lot further than his, than his dad ever would, uh, as he worked his way through the ranks over the next two years to the point that he was actually serving Nobunaga directly as his sandal bearer. Now, this might not sound like much of a position, but it actually was a position of great prestige and importance, bringing your lord his sandals. Apparently, a, a, you know, a much more sought-after job than uh, than than you might have guessed. Anyway, Hideyoshi has a direct connection with Nobunaga as a high-ranking servant. Uh, even before the Battle of Okazama, and his position only improves in 1560 after this battle takes place. As again, we talked about last week, Hideyoshi excelled himself during this battle. He won further favor with Nobunaga and was ultimately brought into the Oda clan's inner circle as a retainer. In 1561, he got married. He married a woman named One. Uh, and then throughout the rest of the 1560s, he was put to work by Nobunaga, uh, being sent around to take care of, of all sorts of tasks. Not all of them. Uh, and, and actually, in fact, only a few of them were military in nature. He oversaw the repair of various castles. He scouted out enemy-held territory. He acted as a diplomat, um, uh, was involved in many negotiations. And of course, you, as we once again, said last week, he was dispatched in the mid-1560s to bribe a bunch of Oda's enemies. Now, Hideyoshi was very, very good at this. He managed to turn several Mino and Saito warlords into allies of the Oda with 
liberal but also very careful bribery. You can imagine that the the successful application of bribes is something that uh, requires a, a deft and light touch. And apparently Hideyoshi was up to the job here because he did manage to bring a lot of people on side that otherwise might have been a problem for the Oda clan as Nobunaga was going around conquering the pants off of Japan. And so Hideyoshi's doing very well there. But in addition to his diplomatic skills, his, his personal, his interpersonal skills, he also continued to demonstrate a real talent on the battlefield. And uh, seven years after his you know, major promotion at Okazama, Hideyoshi once again enjoyed a significant rise in position in 1568 after the 1567 siege of Inabayama Castle. This was Nobunaga's final victory over the Saito clan. And this victory was in no small part achieved by the moving and shaking of Hideyoshi. And Nobunaga recognised that by making him one of his most trusted generals. And it was around this time that Hideyoshi actually changed his name. He started, he started going by the name Hashiba Hideyoshi, although, of course, he would change it again in due course, as we'll come to. Then, uh, in 1570, as you may remember, Nobunaga actually suffered a couple of uncharacteristic defeats when he was fighting the Azai and the Asakura clans, and Hideyoshi was there to back him to the hilt. Typically, uh, we remember the assistance that Nobunaga got from Tokugawa Iyasu during this period uh, in fighting the Azai and the Asakura. But Hideyoshi was there even before Iyasu turned up. He was helping Nobunaga organize an orderly withdrawal and escape from, from the territories where his troops were endangered. Man, uh, managed to help him pull back to an area where he could rally, uh, reinforce his troops successfully with uh, Iyasu and attempt to turn the tide against the Asai and Asakura, which he did once again with Hideyoshi's help on the battlefield. Hideyoshi led troops into battle for the first time as a general in the Battle of Anagawa, uh, which Nobunaga and the Oda, of course, won. And uh, as the years continued, Hideyoshi was met with more and more success. Nobunaga made him a daimyo in lands conquered off of the Azai. Hideyoshi made the most of this opportunity as well. Once he had lands under his direct control, he built a castle, enormously increased firearm production from local factories, and then before long was off fighting very successfully in Nobunaga's campaigns again. And for the rest of the 1570s, Hideyoshi just went about helping Nobunaga wherever he could as the Oda clan continued to just go from strength to strength and conquer entire regions of Japan almost effortlessly here. But as we move out of the 1570s and into the 1580s, this is when we really see Hideyoshi's story start to take off in a major way. Up until this point, he has been in the service of Nobunaga. He has been one of the many generals and, and, uh, and high-ranking, I was going to say servants, but you understand what I mean, the, the, the blokes who were in the service of Nobunaga, uh, doing his bidding, making sure his campaigns were successful. I'm not, gonna, I'm not saying he's a face in a crowd. He was certainly one of the, one of the higher-profile uh, retainers and generals of, of Nobunaga. But his story wasn't a particularly special one until we get to the 1580s. And specifically, as you may have already guessed, 1582, when he was off in Bichu province, he was fighting the Mori clan on the orders of Nobunaga, but it wasn't going very well for him. So as a result, Hideyoshi called for aid and Nobunaga answered. He made ready to march uh, to Bichu province himself with a bunch of his troops. He ordered some generals over there as well to, uh, to reinforce Hideyoshi and help him in his campaign against the Mori. But of course, as you'll remember, Nobunaga never made it. 
to help Hideyoshi because he was betrayed and uh, elected to take his own life in the Honoji incident that we discussed last week. The, tr- the, the treacherous Akechi Mitsuhide uh, betrayed his lord in Honoji Temple in Kyoto and ended the rule of Nobunaga for good as Nobunaga committed seppuku when he realized that he was doomed. And what's more, Nobunaga's son and heir Nobutada also died during the Honoji incident. So there really is not going to be this smooth family succession that Nobunaga may have hoped for and also probably wasn't expecting to have happened for many, many years. He was only in his 40s when he died. But all the same, someone did rise to take his place after he died. Someone did emerge to take command of his armies, take control of the vast lands that he'd conquered. And that someone was, of course, Hideyoshi. But how? As favoured as he was by Nobunaga, he wasn't his heir or anything like that. Well, let's let's talk about how Hideyoshi managed to manoeuvre himself into position after the death of Nobunaga. Hideyoshi didn't waste any time in, dis- in, in swinging into action once he heard of Nobunaga's death. He was determined to avenge the death of Nobunaga and bring the traitor Mitsuhide to justice. And so in seeking this end, Hideyoshi immediately broke off the fighting against the Mori clan. He made peace with them then and there, said, enough's enough, I've got bigger fish to fry. And instead, he rode off towards Kyoto at full speed to begin this campaign of vengeance against Mitsuhide. And this campaign lasted 13 days. Hideyoshi does not hang about. If he's going to get something done, he's going to get it done quick. He chased down Mitsuhide. Uh, Mitsuhide attempted to position himself defensively, him, him and his army's uh, he moved them to a choke point between a river and a mountain in Yamazaki. Uh, but Hideyoshi, he wasn't going to be outdone. Uh, and using a forest to cover his approach, he marched towards Matsuhide's position. He seized and climbed the mountain, which gave him an advantageous position. So played the old Uno reverse card there on Matsuhide and managed to make the best of the terrain himself. And on top of that, Hideyoshi also has, uh, he's got about twice the number of troops here. He still commands the vast number of Oda soldiers that uh, that Nobunaga left behind. And so Matsuhide is going to have to pull something very special out of his bum here in order to uh, to pick up a win against Hideyoshi. Uh, he responded by moving his troops to the other side of the river, making an attack by Hideyoshi very difficult indeed. Attacking across the river obviously is never a good idea. But Hideyoshi was ready for this. He responded by waiting until nightfall. Uh, He deployed a group of ninja into Mitsuhide's camp, and these ninja started great big fires, caused chaos and confusion throughout the night, and made sure that none of Mitsuhide's troops could get a restful night's sleep. And that meant that in the morning, Hideyoshi's forces, who had all, you know, had a, they'd been sleeping soundly all night. They were very well rested. They were able to able to travel up and downstream, cross the river safely, and outflank their exhausted enemies on either side. And before long, Mitsuhide's forces were fleeing for their lives. And the Battle of Yamazaki was won by Hideyoshi very comfortably indeed, although Mitsuhide did escape with his life. So the vengeance that Hideyoshi sought still eluded him and would elude him forever, as it turns out. Because, you know, as nice as it would be to have a properly poetic ending for Mitsuhide being forced to commit seppuku himself by Hideyoshi or something like that. Nope. A week or two after the battle, a fling Mitsuhide ran, a, ran afoul of a group of bandits who killed him just like that. So we didn't get our poetic justice uh, for Nobunaga, but all the same, all the same, Hideyoshi, even though he never avenged Nobunaga's death personally, uh, he certainly gave Mitsuhide an absolute hiding at the uh, at, at, at the Battle of Yamazaki. And this victory propelled him forward, not just with momentum, but also with legitimacy, as he had 
sort of, I guess, been the one to bring about the downfall of Mitsuda, even if you know he wasn't amongst the bandits that actually killed the bloke. Anyway, with this newfound momentum, with this newfound legitimacy as the perceived successor of, uh, of Nobunaga, Hideyoshi now turned his attention to keeping his old master's realm together, as of course Nobunaga's single goal throughout his life was the unification of Japan. And luckily for Hideyoshi, he was in the right place at the right time. None of Nobunaga's other generals were in the position that he was to seize power. Nobunaga hadn't left an heir behind. Things were up for grabs, but one of his generals, Takigawa Katsumasu, is off fighting the Hojo clan and losing, I might add. We'll have to come back to the Hojo clan in due course. Um, another, Shibata Katsui, is off fighting the Uesugi. Uh, we talked about them last week. And as for Tokugawa Iyasu, he's off in his home of Mikawa province. And by the time he heads back towards Kyoto, it's too late. Hideyoshi has already seized control of Nobunaga's holdings, uh, his troops. He's positioned himself as the successor to Nobunaga in many people's minds. But he wasn't, strictly speaking, his heir. Last week, I talked about Nobunaga's, Nobunaga's successor and heir and talked about how Hideyoshi ended up sort of filling this position himself. And I, I guess I wasn't as accurate as, as I could have been really in hindsight because one of the first things that Hideyoshi did after establishing himself in no, Nobunaga's position was to summon all of the daimyos that had been loyal to Nobunaga um, so, as determine, so as to determine who would become Nobunaga's heir. And you're, you're thinking, well, what? hang on, why, why would he let the daimyos decide? Isn't he, Hideyoshi, the heir? Yes and no, he's the heir only in one sense. Hideyoshi is not from Clan Oda. He can't be the heir to the position of clan leader. So, while Hideyoshi succeeded Nobunaga in terms of his political and military positions, he didn't inherit his position, obviously, within Clan Oda. And so in 1583, the daimyos came together as requested and with Hideyoshi's uh, guidance, shall we say, they selected Nobunaga's grandson, Oda Hidenobu, to take up the mantle of leadership. Now, here's the thing about Oda Hidenobu. He is, at this point, three years old. He is the son of Oda Nobutada, who had also died in Honoji with his father. So I'm sure the more Machiavellian amongst you listeners can figure out what is going on here. Hideyoshi bypassed the next generation of potential Oda leaders, the other sons of Nobunaga who, was, who had survived, and instead put an infant in charge of the clan, in name at least. This meant, of course, that he, Hideyoshi, was free to essentially give the orders on behalf of this three-year-old kid and thereby take effective de facto control of clan Oda. And on top of this, in order to placate and bring Nobunaga's other generals on side underneath his leadership, Hideyoshi then handed out parcels of land that had been controlled by Nobunaga to other generals. And all of this was an absolute masterstroke. Just like that, Hideyoshi had completely undermined the power of the Oda clan by bypassing these surviving uh, sons of, of Nobunaga, going straight, going straight to an infant grandson. And then... By redistributing the clan's holdings, the power that the Oda clan had anyway was, again, greatly diminished. Almost no one within the Oda clan could really stand up to Hideyoshi because half their land had been handed off to other generals who were now loyal to the bloke who had, of course, just given them all this land. So despite not being Nobunaga's heir when it came to the Oda clan, Hideyoshi nonetheless found a way to make sure that he didn't lose an inch of control 
over Nobunaga's legacy as his de facto successor and, from a certain point of view, his heir. He inherited control of Nobunaga's lands. Most importantly, he inherited control of his troops by establishing himself as the successor of Nobunaga. He gained command of all of the forces that had been loyal to the Oda clan before him. But there was one thorn in his side. Another of the Nobunaga generals, Shibata Katsui, who, as I mentioned, had been uh, fighting the Uesugi, he wasn't so easily swayed. Katsui wasn't going to accept what Hideyoshi was doing. He wasn't going to accept it without a fight anyway. And so he decided to raise his army and declared that he would instead support one of Nobunaga's sons as the Oda clan leader, Oda Nobutaka. Hideyoshi and Katsui eventually met in battle to, to answer the question once and for all, but of course, Hideyoshi had the bulk of Nobunaga's forces on his side. He was a very accomplished general in his own right, and he wiped the floor with Katsui, who later committed seppuku. The Battle of Shitsugataki, which saw the defeat of Katsui and uh, Oda Nobutaka, who he'd been supporting, entrenched Hideyoshi's position as the most powerful man in Japan, just like just like Nobunaga had been, and just like Nobunaga. Hideyoshi didn't have anything really in the way of particularly official titles or positions. Nobunaga had never been shogun. Hideyoshi would never be shogun either. But both of them just had a lot of land, a lot of troops, and a lot of money, and sometimes that's all that matters. Hideyoshi wasn't quite out of the woods, even after beating Katsui and Nobutaka. The reason for this is uh, Nobunaga had another son, Oda Nobukatsu, who decided that he was going to have a tilt at the crown. Um, and obviously he couldn't do this alone. Uh, just as Katsui had supported Nobutaka, Nobukatsu also needed a powerful military sponsor. And it's here that we bring a name back into focus that uh, a bloke we met last week, a bloke who's sort of come in and out of this story so far as well this week, and a bloke who will continue to be very, very important as we talk about Japan's great unifiers, Tokugawa Iyasu. Iyasu sensed a real opportunity with Nobukatsu's claim to his father's position as the Oda clan leader. Iyasu knew that if he took the fight to Hideyoshi, if he was able to elevate Nobukatsu to the position of clan leader within the Oda clan, he knew that he, Iyasu, would effectively be the one in charge. You'll notice there's a lot of fighting going on for the leadership of the Oda clan, but in all honesty, as you've probably figured out, that's kind of secondary to the real truth, because whoever controls the Oda leadership has the real power. So if Iyasu is to put his bloke in charge of Clan Oda, that would effectively give him de facto control over Nobunaga's legacy, make him the one with all the power, even if he's not the one with the titles. Hideyoshi has already proven that this works by putting a three-year-old in charge of uh, in charge of Clan Oda. So Iyasu knows that if he makes Nobukatsu the, the, the Oda clan leader, he knew that he himself would real real control of things, just as Hideyoshi did now with the, with the grandson, as I say, Hidenobu. So... Iyasu rose to challenge Hideyoshi, and a series of battles was fought between the two sides, six of them in all. I wonder if you can actually predict the result here, because in many ways it was a stalemate. It's generally held that Iyasu emerged in a slightly better position, particularly as he had fewer troops and did more with less. But on the whole, neither side really achieved all that much as they fought each other. As, uh, as Iyasu and Hideyoshi duked it out, there wasn't a clear winner at any point as these battles raged back and forth. And instead of a clear and decisive result, uh, the two blokes quite wisely, in my opinion, decided to come together 
and negotiate a peaceful end to the conflict. It's thought that both of them recognised that they couldn't defeat the other without catastrophic losses of their own, and also that this conflict stood in direct opposition to the goals of their former Lord and Master Oda Nobunaga, who had given his entire life to the unification of Japan, not to continued protracted civil war between these warlords. So very sensible and quite far-sighted of both of these blokes. I'm sure you'll agree here because they recognised that given how evenly matched they were, a victory over the other would cost so much that it actually wouldn't end up being a victory for very long, given the number of other ambitious daimyo who would pounce on the weakness of the victor. They would end up just being taken out by someone else in their weakened state and wouldn't be around to enjoy the the hard-fought victory they'd had over their rival here. So... In early 1585, as I say, the two men came together, they made peace. Nobunaga's grandson Hidenobu remained the leader of the Oda clan in name, and both Hideyoshi and Iyasu focused on other endeavours rather than fruitlessly fighting one another. So again, not the most decisive result to things, but again, it's good to see that these two men decided to walk away rather than needlessly spill the blood of their own men. So not the most exciting rivalry in history, but certainly one of the more interesting ones, particularly as the next time these two blokes meet, it will be as allies, although we'll come to that in due course. After leaving this conflict behind, things got a lot better for Hideyoshi. 1585 saw him elevated by the emperor to a range of high-profile titles and positions, although, as I say, never shogun. And he was made the leader of his own clan, the Toyotomi clan. And that's why we know him today by the name Toyotomi Hideyoshi. That was essentially his final form. And uh, with all of these new fancy titles and positions, Hideyoshi decided to renew Nobunaga's goal of unifying Japan. And so uh, once again began to attack other daimyos and their provinces just as Nobunaga had done. In 1585, He conquered Key province before moving on to the island of Shikoku and challenging the powerful daimyo Chosokabi Motochika for control of the island. And by this stage, Hideyoshi is in command of an army comprised of over 110,000 men, an incomprehensibly large force. And so while Motochika put up the best fight he could in defense of his island, he he only had 40,000 troops, a piddling 40,000 troops of his own. So his defeat was essentially inevitable. Shikoku fell to Hideyoshi, who divided up the four provinces on the island between three generals, also generously giving the one leftover back to Motochika to remain in charge of. And uh, still in 1585, very, very busy year for Hideyoshi here, uh, he then invaded Echu and Hida provinces, splitting his forces and sending generals off to fight in multiple places so as to speed up the conflict. And again, it was just largely a question of numbers. An invasion force of 100,000 men arrived with only 20,000 men to defend. So Echu and Hida fell within a month. And by the end of August, Hideyoshi had added a total of seven new provinces to his collection. And he didn't slow down much into 1586 either. He then went after the Shimatsu clan, who controlled much of uh, Kyushu Island, although this campaign did take a little longer. Uh, Hideyoshi fought for Kyushu into 1587, as the Shimatsu clan were able to to actually take quite a a fair beating and still keep themselves in the fight. But ultimately they succumbed, and Hideyoshi's forces slowly but surely worked their way to the uh, Shimatsu homeland of Satsuma province, uh, where the uh, where the Shimatsu surrendered before they were wiped out entirely. And with the capitulation of the Shimatsu and the conquest of Kyushu, there was really only one major clan left standing to oppose Hideyoshi, and it is, as I mentioned before, 
the Hojo of the Kanto region, the region that, uh, that, that, that uh, today surrounds modern-day Tokyo. But before we get to this showdown with the Hojo clan, before we get to this conflict that would determine the future of Japan and its unification, I want to tell you about what happened in 1588 when Hideyoshi went on what is probably the most famous sword hunt in Japanese history. A sword hunt involved, well, I mean, really just exactly what it says on the tin. A ruler like, like Hideyoshi would send his armies throughout the land and forcibly confiscate swords off of anyone and everyone. He wasn't the only one to do this. Sword hunts have happened a few times throughout Japanese history. In fact, Oda Nobunaga himself undertook one while he was attempting to deal with, uh, with rebellious peasants. Um, but the 1588 sword hunt is probably the most famous in Japanese history due to just how comprehensive it was. At this time in the Sengoku period, many people had swords and all sorts of other weapons. Just regular common peasants were, were often armed. Um, we've already talked about how farmers would work as Ashigaru. They needed weapons to take with them when they went off fighting. But it wasn't just that. People needed weapons to defend themselves when the fighting came to them and their homes and their their farms. And Hideyoshi didn't like this. Uh, he was concerned about the idea of a peasant uprising. He was particularly concerned about the idea of a peasant uprising staged by peasants who were very well armed. And so in 1588, he dispersed his armies throughout the lands that he held to go and take basically all the weapons away from the peasants over which he ruled. Hideyoshi didn't have much time for the rule of law. Instead, he gave orders and he made edicts and he expected them to be carried out. Maybe I shouldn't say he didn't have time for the rule of law. He did. It was just he had time for his law rather than law that was, you know, established by precedent or principle or whatever. Hideyoshi was a bloke who got things done. He told people what to do and they did it. And that was that. He was not a particularly consultative leader. He wasn't someone who particularly enjoyed collaborating with other people. He wanted the weapons out of the hands of these peasants. And so that's what happened. Hideyoshi had already had to deal with minor peasant uprisings here and there. He wasn't in the mood to see them escalate. Uh, And as we know, prevention is generally better than the cure. So he sent his soldiers off. They confiscated weapons of all kinds from the peasantry throughout the lands that he controlled. It's called a sword hunt, but it also involved the confiscation of spears and bows and guns and basically any other weapons found in the hands of of a peasant. Uh, The nobility were allowed to retain theirs, however. So not only did this disempower the working classes, it also reinforced the gap between the lower and upper classes. And this was very much by design uh, when it when it came to Hideyoshi's plans. He, he did want a strictly stratified class system uh, while, he was, uh, while he was in charge. Hideyoshi did attempt to soften the blow of taking all of these weapons away from, uh, from the peasantry. He said that he would melt down all of the swords that he took away uh, and use them to make a giant statue of the Buddha. Now, I wasn't actually able to determine if he ever did this or not, but whatever the case, the 1588 sword hunt was both very successful and extremely comprehensive, and it further strengthened Hideyoshi's position as peasant uprisings now would just not really be a threat to him now because it would be very difficult for peasants to undertake a successful uprising when they're armed with, you know, torches and pitchforks instead of guns and swords. So, This certainly shored up the internal stability of Hideyoshi's realm. It meant that he didn't have to worry about the lower classes rising up against him so much. And as I say, also continued to sow division between all of Japan's social classes and make sure that the peasants stayed as peasants, which 
really isn't giving much respect to his roots, as you'll remember, Hideyoshi was born a peasant before rising to become the most powerful man in in all of Japan. Anyway, back to the campaigns here and on to the Hojo clan. In 1590, Hideyoshi moved against, as I say, the last major clan to be able to stand against him. And interestingly, by this point, Hideyoshi and Iyasu have buried the hatchet to the point that Iyasu is actually willing to fight for Hideyoshi, not against him. And so he joins Hideyoshi in what's known as the Odawara campaign. The attacking forces now numbered over 200,000 men. And despite the Hojo having over 80,000 troops of their own, they were, once again, hopelessly outnumbered by Hideyoshi. The 1590 siege of Odawara saw tens of thousands of Hideyoshi's troops lay siege to Odawara Castle, and Hideyoshi put on quite a show for the defenders. He hired entertainers, musicians, acrobats, jugglers, all to put on shows for the attacking troops as they besieged the castle, as well as hiring a bunch of sex workers as well to keep them all happy and well looked after. So, A bit of psychological warfare for the defenders within the castle walls here, watching all the troops outside having the time of their lives as inside the castle, of course, besieged as they were, the supplies dwindled. And after three months, the Hojo surrendered. Their leaders were made to commit seppuku. Hideyoshi seized the Kanto region and all of its provinces. And, according to some historians, the Sengoku period finally came to an end. Now, others say that it continued until 1615. We're going to get across all of that. But even so, it is difficult to deny that the fall of Odawara was a turning point in Japanese history. Because Japan was, for all intents and purposes, unified. There was no one left to resist Hideyoshi's rule as the sole leader of Japan. He'd done it. He had followed through on the vision, the objectives that Oda Nobunaga had set out all those years ago and had brought all of Japan under his control. And even if the Sengoku period would continue until 1615, much of that was just maintaining the status quo of a unified Japan under a single leader, not the splintered and fractious infighting and civil war that had plagued Japan for the last century and a half. But if there's one thing that Hideyoshi didn't want to do now that he had secured the the goal of the complete unification of Japan, he wanted to make sure he did not let it slip through his fingers. He didn't want to fall back into infighting and, and, and civil war, as I say. And so there is one man who did very, very well for himself in the wake of the downfall of the Hojo. Because in securing his position, Hideyoshi very prudently rewarded Iyasu for his service in taking the fight to the Hojo and gave him control of all eight provinces that had been formerly ruled by the Hojo clan in exchange for Iyasu agreeing to submit to him and offer him his loyalty. And Iyasu also very prudently, you might have thought, this is a bloke who clearly knew when to take the fight to his rivals and foes and knew when to accept a good deal when it was on the table. Iyasu agreed. He submitted to Hideyoshi and became his vassal, although that is not quite the end of his story. It is not the last that we've heard from him, don't you worry. But with the downfall of the Hojo clan, with the conquest of the Kanto region, and with the submission of Iyasu, Hideyoshi was completely uncontested in his rule over a unified Japan. He had, within 10 years, fulfilled Nobunaga's vision 
of a Japan united under one single ruler. And so what did he do? Did he weep like Alexander for there were no lands left to conquer? No, of course not. He found new lands instead, looking west across the Sea of Japan towards China, dreaming of further conquest there. But in order to facilitate invasion of China, Hideyoshi was eyeing off not China itself, but instead what we today call Korea. At the time, Korea was known as Joseon, and Hideyoshi had actually been in touch with Joseon for a few years, trying to negotiate a deal whereby Japanese troops could use Korea as an access point for an invasion of China. This wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. It was something that uh, that Hideyoshi had been cooking up for, for quite a while. But Joseon had never really been that keen on the idea, and finally in 1591, they made it very clear that they were refusing, they would not change their position, they were not going to allow Japanese troops to land on the Korean Peninsula and use it, as I say, as a staging ground to invade Japan. But Hideyoshi is not about to accept that, he is not going to take no for an answer, and he says, well, bugger it. If we want to invade China, we will just have to invade Joseon to begin with. And uh, look, you might wonder at this point, why was he so hungry for continued conquest? After all, he's just unified Japan. Why can't that be enough? Well, despite only being in his 50s, Hideyoshi's health is already beginning to fail him a little bit. And he's wanting to secure his he's wanting to secure his historical legacy. I mean, I would have thought that the unification of Japan would be quite enough. But no, I mean, there are always more lands to conquer. And so... With Joseon refusing to allow Japanese troops to land and stage invasion of China, Hideyoshi, he fast-tracks things. He instead orders an invasion of Joseon to try to get troops into China and uh, and, and continue his conquest, the conquest that has defined the last decade that he's enjoyed as, uh, as, as the leader of Japan. In 1592... Hideyoshi sent off a massive force of over 150,000 troops. He sent them off in ships. They landed in the Joseon capital of Seoul, captured it with ease, and then made plans to carve up Joseon into eight regions that would each be conquered by a division of the Japanese army. And within a few months, this conquest had been carried out. We have already said that Hideyoshi is not a bloke who liked to wait around. When he wanted something done, he got it done, and the Korean peninsula fell to the Japanese, as I say, in months. It was so bad for Joseon that the Joseon king actually fled to China and there he pled with the ruling Ming dynasty for aid. The Ming agreed. They responded by sending 40,000 troops to contest the Japanese occupation of Joseon, fighting them on the land, while the Joseon navy led an attack against the Japanese on the water. And you may well know who was in charge of the Joseon Navy, who went at it so hard on the water that the Japanese fleet ended up all but destroyed. Well, cast your minds back, my friends. Our mate Admiral Yi Sun Sin, one of the greatest naval commanders history has ever seen. Episode 63, get across it. Yi Sun Sin set the dinner table and served the Japanese their own teeth on the water. And between this and rather mixed results on land against the Chinese, the first Japanese invasion of Korea didn't go quite so well for Hideyoshi. He realised that he'd never be able to invade China like this, with his fleet being torn to pieces by Yi Sun-sin and the Japanese being very meaningfully contested by by the Chinese. It was something of a stalemate, really, between Japan and China, but still, it wasn't the overwhelming victory that uh, that Hideyoshi had been hoping for here. And so, 
As a result, this stalemate, this defeat on water, it led to peace negotiations and ultimately a truce between the two sides. Neither side was able to decisively beat the other. And uh, and look, I mean, besides all this, Hideyoshi had other problems back at home that he had to deal with, problems that really are going to expose a pretty awful side of his personality. I mean, we've talked about the fact that he's driven and motivated and quite ruthless, but he, I mean, really, you probably can kind of put this together yourself. He wasn't the nicest bloke, not by any means, really. None of these personality traits we've already talked about necessarily mean that he's a pleasant fellow to be around. He certainly wasn't. I mean, like Nobunaga, he could be ruthless and he could be cold-blooded. More or less every conqueror has to be at some point. But Hideyoshi at some points was just cruel. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to how he handled setting up his familial succession plans. With his second wife, Yododono, Hideyoshi had had a son named Suramatsu, who had very sadly died back in 1591 at the age of just three years old. Now, Hideyoshi at that point had no other children, and so he adopted his nephew, Hidetsugu, as his heir in 1592 to ensure a stable succession. But then, the next year in 1593, Yododono gave birth to another son, Hideyori, and so now Hideyoshi didn't need Hidetsugu anymore. So rather than just... I don't know, disinherit him or anything like that, Hideyoshi exiled him. Okay, fair enough. Get rid of the bloke, try to get him as far away as possible. But then later in 1595, ordered him, his nephew, ordered him to commit suicide. A bit much, you'd think, a bit bloody much, but he really wanted that family tree pruned within an inch of its life, so much so that just to make a proper job of it, Hideyoshi then went on to murder 31 members of Hidetsugu's family just to make sure no one would attempt to press the claim that Hidetsugu had very briefly had as the adopted son of his uncle. Pretty bloody brutal. Not something that reflects all that well on him these days, but I suppose he was just that determined to ensure a smooth succession. And for all his efforts, he didn't get one either, as we'll talk about soon enough. Anyway, Hideyoshi renewed his attempts to, uh, to invade Joseon with a second invasion in 1597, and this one, this one went even worse than the first. The Japanese hardly made any gains whatsoever against the Chinese on land, and Admiral Yi, he's at it again. He pops on his waiter's outfit, he goes up to the table where the Japanese are seated, offers them the a la carte menu. Oh, and what's this? It's the lunch special today. It's knuckle sandwiches, mate. He tore the Japanese to pieces on the water once again, and the Japanese were in a very, very bad spot very quickly after renewing their invasion attempts. However, Hideyoshi was spared the worst of the Japanese defeats because he ended up dying. On the 18th of September 1598, he wasn't around to witness the failure of his troops over on the Korean Peninsula because he was dead. His poor health had only gotten worse and worse before failing him altogether. And in the wake of his death, the Japanese armies were quietly withdrawn from their campaign in Joseon, and uh, they came back to find their leader dead and all invasion plans put well and truly on the back burner. And I mentioned before a lack of a smooth succession, because Hideyoshi ended up biting off a fair bit more than he could chew by attempting an invasion to the West. Believe it or not, his efforts in Joseon actually weakened his overall position to the point that when he died, the Toyotomi clan just wasn't able to pick up where he'd left off. 
Kind of like how the Oda clan had become sidelined after the death of Nobunaga, the Toyotomi clan wasn't able to maintain their position at the, to- at the top of the heap without Hideyoshi. They didn't have the manpower or the, the money to hold on to the power that Hideyoshi had gathered for himself. And so the time of the Toyotomi clan was over almost as soon as it had begun. Hideyoshi's generals were splintered, his forces were divided, his formerly loyal daimyo were now sniffing opportunity on the wind, and can you guess who it was that rose to the occasion and filled this power vacuum left behind with the death of Hideyoshi? Who was it that seized the moment and thrust his name into the history books? That's right, it was Japan's third great unifier, none other than Tokugawa Iyasu. Iyasu's time had finally come. He had always been a powerful warlord, firstly favoured by Nobunaga, and then ultimately winding up in a powerful position after the fall of the Hojo under Hideyoshi, and now it was his turn to harness his ambition and ascend to greatness. Hideyoshi had had a hell of an innings. In less than a decade, he had gone from taking over Nobunaga's position to fulfilling his ultimate objective of unifying Japan. But that's in the rear view. Because in time, Iyasu would overcome all the other squabbling daimyo in Hideyoshi's wake. He would entrench the unification of Japan and establish the mighty Tokugawa shogunate. And the Tokugawa shogunate would last until the late 19th century established by Iyasu and standing the test of time for over two centuries. But that, I'm sorry to say, is another story. So join me next week as we talk about the third and final great unifier of Japan, Tokugawa Iyasu. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, although we are not quite finished yet with the story of the unification of Japan. Back next week, of course, to, to close it out with the story of Tokugawa Iyasu, as I say. But hope you've been enjoying a bit of Japanese history. Back with more of it next week. Until then, of course, leaving with all the boring housekeeping stuff we go through every week. Uh, Halfhousehistory.net, that's the website. You can find links to the merch shop there. The Patreon, if you want to support the show financially and gain yourself access to all sorts of exclusive member benefits, you can do that there or patreon.com slash halfhousehistory and go straight there. Uh, Make sure you're subscribing on uh, Android or on Spotify or on iTunes. Leave a review if you feel like it. I'd love if it were, you know, a positive one. doesn't have to be, but that's certainly, I mean, that's why I mentioned, I'm not reminding you so you go and write about how, Bad this and why are you st- if the shows why are you listening? I mean, I th- would have thought you'd stopped ages if it's that anyway. Whatever. Um, that's about that. I've done all the boring housekeeping stuff ten thousand times. You've probably listened to it. Well, unless it's your first episode, in which case, welcome by all means, welcome. Um, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely feel ambivalent. Um, and tell your weeb mates as well. Japanese history, we're in the thick of things, man. Get them, get them away from their their animes and their mangas, and get them to put down their bloody Naruto and Dragon Ball Z for just a second to listen to some bloody history, mate. Absolute nerds. Um, speaking of Dragon Ball Z, by the way, uh, going to leave you, of course, the question. Actually, no, not a, not even a question. A statement posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Furtben, who has this to say. I've been reading all about the Sengoku period and it's complete nonsense. Not once did they send Goku to sort it all out. 